KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW, I'm Kim Masters, and this is The Business. This week on The Business, we revisit our conversation with Sterling Harjo. Before he co-created the award-winning FX series Reservation Dogs, Harjo directed three micro-budget films in his home state of Oklahoma. He had knocked on Hollywood's door without any luck. I heard that multiple times, that Native films don't make money. You know, I even heard like, well, this film's just a little too Indian, you know, or like, this film's not Indian enough. We don't know where to kind of categorize it, you know? So uh, it was very confusing. Reservation Dogs was very Indian, a quirky coming-of-age show with an almost entirely indigenous cast and crew. The show has wrapped up its three-season run, having picked up awards and much critical love. Harjo tells us about teaming up with longtime friend Taika Waititi to create Reservation Dogs, now streaming on Hulu. But first we banter. Stick around. It's the business from KCRW. I am joined by my partner in banter, Matt Bellany. Hello, Matt. Hi there. So I'm just going to turn to the giant thing coming into theaters this weekend, Taylor Swift, The Heiress Tour. This is the concert film, in case you've been in a cave for a long time and don't know. She has done something very unusual here that hasn't happened before. She made a deal directly with AMC to distribute this film, which means the studios who have been clamoring, please bring us more box office, are not even in this. No, they have been completely cut out. And this is a film that several studios actually bid on. But AMC came in here and negotiated directly with Taylor Swift's parents. It's a very interesting deal because AMC obviously is a exhibitor of films. Now it is also the distributor of films. So it is making deals with other theater chains to show this movie around the world. And because of that, the split in revenue is going about... 43% to the theaters, which is, you know, AMC and the others. And then 57% of the revenue is being split between the Taylor Swift family and AMC as the distributor. And of that 57%, AMC is getting a tiny, tiny sliver as a distribution fee. The rest, or more than half of the revenue from box office, is going directly to the Taylor Swift family. Not a bad deal here. Not a bad deal. If you can get it, uh, we don't know how this is going to open because this has not been done before. But estimates are like maybe a uh, hundred million, one hundred and twenty million in the first weekend here in the United States. I I think we both are going to feel like that's low, right? I feel like that's low, but the reason why it's hard to predict is because it's playing for 13 weeks in theaters, but it's only playing weekends. It's not doing, you know, full weeks runs. And in the price point here is $20, or if you're a Taylor Swift fan, it's $19.89, which is a very important date for her fans. That's how much it costs, which is higher than the average ticket price in most of the country, although sometimes lower than in L.A. New York. And that's a big deal because it could juice the revenue here for the weekend. So I, I think it's going to be more than 120, but AMC is being a little bit more cautious, around 100. Um, yeah. And then overseas, it's also opening, and the ticket sales there have not been as robust as in the U.S. I've heard some grumbling from 
the studio people here in, in Hollywood saying, oh, if you had gone with a traditional studio, we know how to open movies overseas. It's mm -hmm. not just about putting something on Taylor Swift's social media and going to some Kansas City Chiefs game. You have to actually market <laughs> overseas, but we'll see how it does there. Overall, there was more than $100 million in pre-sales for this movie. So it's going to do fine. It's just a question of how much. Yeah, obviously this is not something the studios really want to see as a trend, but there aren't that many people who could even think about doing this. You know, Taylor Swift is unique. Uh, Beyonce, however, is doing a similar thing with her concert film. Uh, and I don't know, thinking beyond them, I'm not sure how many people could even expect to try this. Yeah, it's interesting because the pre-sales on Beyonce are not at the Taylor Swift level. That film is not coming out until December 13th, so there's a couple months there. And I think if people go and have a great time at Taylor Swift, maybe they will then, you know, boost the Beyonce sales. But other than them right now, it is interesting. Like, you know, maybe, you know, AMC claims that they are getting calls from all sorts of artists that want to do this. I don't know, you know, it's probably 10 or 15 artists that might even consider this kind of an arrangement that their fans may show up. I think maybe some of the K-pop bands could do this. You know, maybe some of these big touring artists like an Ed Sheeran or a Drake. Um, but beyond that, it's tough to know. And I know that, that AMC would very much like to do this because they're not getting as many movies as they thought they were, in part because of the strikes. I mean, movies are are being pushed to next year, and the production schedules are going to wreak havoc on the summer movie-going season. So I think if AMC could get a couple of these concert films for next summer, they'd probably take them in a second. Yes. Uh, now, speaking of box office that the studios get to share in... Uh, we have just seen The Exorcist Believer, the, which is supposed to be the first of a trilogy of films based on the original Exorcist uh, film, uh, you know, the, the film from years ago. Uh, it got clobbered partly because it moved a week earlier out of the way of Taylor Swift and found itself having more competition from that same kind of genre films. But at the same time, it's gotten brutally panned. And, uh, you know, it's just a, a tremendous loss. Jason Blum, you know, it's his company that signed on to do this. And this was a streaming deal. And he has said on this very show that if you don't have any skin in the game and you just take the upfront streamer fee, you're just not as invested. He said that in the past. And at the same time, he signed on to do these this trilogy. Now they got to figure out what they're going to do, because this was a loser for Universal. And they have to figure out if they can make it into a thing for two more. Well, and normally we wouldn't care that much because it was about a $30 million production budget for this. It opened to 27, which is not terrible. But the big albatross here is that Universal paid $400 million for the rights to do three movies. And yes, Blum says that he wants skin in the game, but Blum got paid a lot of money up front from that fee to do this, as did Morgan Creek, which is the rights holder. And now they have, they kind of have to figure out what to do with this franchise because they've paid so much money for the rights. Maybe they do lower cost movies just for Peacock. Maybe they do a complete reboot. You know, David Gordon Green maybe won't come back for the sequel as planned. They got to figure out what to do with this. Yeah, I mean, making these movies only for Peacock would obviously be very far from what the studio had in mind. You know, Billy Friedkin, he he made a, a iconic film. Uh, he was not at all involved with this one. And, uh, you know, it's not so easy to catch that lightning back into the bottle when you're trying to milk a, 
what they call IP. Yeah, they wanted this to be Halloween all over again. And Halloween was a, you know, very kind of long-in-the-tooth horror franchise that they managed to reinvent in 2018 by bringing back an original star in Jamie Lee Curtis. And they thought they could do that with Exorcist and have Ellen Burstyn in the film. I think right. it's a little different because Jamie Lee Curtis is like the quintessential sc- you know, scream queen. Scream queen yeah. And <laughs> she's so identified with that franchise. And Ellen Burstyn, I mean, yes, she was in the original and she's now 90 years old. But like, I don't think that was the the, the big draw that they thought it was going to be. Yeah, it's that that pea soup shooting out of the child's mouth. I think that's what people look for in an exorcist film. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. That's Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News. In the FX comedy series Reservation Dogs, four young friends band together in a series that deftly explores community loss and intergenerational trauma with a comedic overlay. In the first episode, the friends seize an opportunity to make some extra cash when a delivery driver steps away from his truck full of spicy potato chips. Put your seatbelt on. Seatbelt? Oh, People say oh. we're stealing a chip. I do not give a Put your seatbelt on. Jesus Christ. Okay. Reservation Dogs co-creator Sterling Harjo came up with the idea for the series with his longtime friend Taika Waititi. When Waititi went off to make the next Thor movie, Harjo had to take on showrunning duties on his own with many questions about how to do that job. Harjo and Waititi first met through Bird Running Water, the longtime director of Indigenous programs at the Sundance Institute, where Harjo was selected for a fellowship in 2004. Yeah, I mean, you know, Bird basically was kind of almost curating and pulling different artists together and really growing this like indigenous film community. And, you know, through the support of Sundance, I went out to the Sundance Labs and then I was at the festival and Taika and I met because he had also been one of the people that Bird worked with over the years and also went to the labs. And Taika and I met, you know, at some of Bird's get togethers and functions. And really that's how we became friends. And just remained friends after that because of the indigenous sort of film circuit. You were making films and a doc all in Oklahoma where you wanted to work. That was a deliberate choice. Yes. I mean, you know, I've always sort of been stubborn in that I didn't want to leave here. And, you know, I always looked up to filmmakers like Richard Linklater that stayed in their communities and helped those communities grow as well. And so I always wanted to do that here in Oklahoma. I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, you know, along the way, I was told a lot of times that I wouldn't be able to do that. You know, I think that um, it's very rare that people try to do that. And so, you know, I was told numerous times that that was impossible, that I would have to move to L.A. Um, I just never did. And I just made my films here. And honestly, it was like I went out to L.A. and I used to take meetings right after the Sundance Labs. I I went out there with my script and I thought I was like the toast of the town. You know, I thought I was going to (laughs) really I thought they were going to all the doors were going to be open. Right. But it was a very different time then. It was a very different industry then. Talk of diversity was not in the air. And different people that I would share the script with, everyone loved the script, but ultimately the writing was on the wall and they were they were not going to make the film. I remember one guy saying, you know, if we could get someone like Philip Seymour Hoffman on the poster, you know, maybe we could do, you know, fun. <laughs> That's such, such a bad cliche, but go ahead. Yeah. And it was very much like a different time period, you know? So I, I sort of tucked tail and, and ran and went back to Oklahoma. And I was like, they're not going to make my films out there. So I just 
I had a bit of a career here in Oklahoma and I thought I could find the right support. And I did. I started making my films on a micro budget. He was barely making a living, honestly, but it was, and it was film to film. And I just knew that at some point the industry would change. And all I had to do was stick to my guns and keep making films. And I did that and it did change. And then I, you know, started coming back out to LA once streaming and TV was, I started getting jobs in, in that arena and I could just feel the difference. You know, people were interested in stories and, and, and my stories and, and they, they were also impressed that I'd made so many films on such a low, low budget, you know, and just kept working mm. throughout the years. Um, and I yes. think that really actually helped me a lot. I think that helped me a lot, kind of give people confidence in hiring me. Right. They thought this guy gets it done for a price. That's right. Uh, which is important. I mean, you were on that in the bad days of, well, I would say bad old days, except they were more like 10 minutes ago. You know, yeah. it was that loop of, well, we don't think this will make money because native films, I mean, it's always like baseball films don't make money. Native films don't make right. money. Oh yeah. I heard that multiple times that native films don't make money. You know, I even heard like, well, this film's just a little too Indian, you know, or like this film's not Indian enough. We don't know where to kind of categorize it, you know? So uh, it was very confusing to just say, hey, I just want to tell a regular story about people, you know? People that you know. That's right. People that I'd known, people that are in my family and, you know, not necessarily films about identity. It was just stories, you know, like that's what I wanted to express. And it wasn't what they wanted. But, you know, and I could have let that discourage me and stop, but I, I just knew that I, I needed to keep telling these stories. So practically speaking, how did you put together those micro budgets? I mean, it was so random, you know, it was like so many different ways. I mean, one time my producer, he lived in Tulsa, he'd been rejected numerous times. So I'm trying to get funding for the film, calling everyone he knew. And he literally, out of frustration, yelled in his office. He worked in a law office. He yelled really loud. Does anyone know anyone with any money except to use a curse word? <laughs> and um, this intern sort of rolled back in his chair and said, uh, I might. And literally introduced him to someone who was interested in funding the film. And that's what how I got my first film funded. Um, <laughs> I'm just thinking with a new approach, you're going to have people yelling out in offices all over the country, but go on. <laughs> exactly. No, I know. And then another time there was uh, just a guy with money that um, had approached my producer because they had a film that sort of fell apart, but the money was still there. And they were like, does Sterling have anything that he wants to make? And I had had about, I'd written half a script and I was about halfway through it. And so I told my producer to lie. And I said, tell them that I'm working on a second draft and I'll get it to them in two weeks. And so I finished this script called Barking Water in a couple of weeks, sent it to them. And then I was making it a few months later. Wow. Exactly. Uh, it's pretty crazy. This has been, I mean, I know that you get, the show gets talked about so much because as the first, I, I imagine that's kind of gratifying that it's being talked about, but a little frustrating that you're still in that lens of the, you know, the yeah. first, the first, the first. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, it's a blessing to be able to do that, but it doesn't stop with this show. I think that there's so many stories out there and so many indigenous stories that need to be told that I hope that it opens the doors for all those other stories to be told. Yeah, I hope that somebody does because it is crazy. I, I think I read somewhere where you said it felt that, you know, it's diversity with Native coming in last as far as priorities. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, we're a small portion of the population. And it's it's interesting because we've been a part of cinema from the beginning, though, right? Like even Edison films back in the day were depicting Native people dancing and different things. And so it's, it's interesting that it's taken this long to really kind of tell our own story. I mean, 
you know, we were always the zombies in the Westerns, you know, we were sort of faceless and soulless and we were in the way of Western expansion and, and we needed to be eradicated. So we served a function in a way in American storytelling, but that function never allowed us to tell our own story. And so it's, it's interesting and gratifying as well that we're finally being able to tell those stories. Yeah. Now you didn't want this to be like this, you know, you wanted it to be a comedy uh, and right. Taika and you, I gather, you know, being friends talked about it and at some point decided working together was a, a thing to do. Right. You know, Taika had an overall deal at FX and, you know, and we were friends and I watched him sort of explode into this superstar, you know, it's like, it's a strange thing to watch your friend do that. But I never asked for help or like, you know, hey, can we do something? I never did that because I just, we were friends. And one day he said, hey, I have this overall deal at FX. Would you be interested in doing something? And I was like, yeah. And so I saw really all I needed to hear. And throughout the years, we had read each other's scripts and gave each other feedback. And so, you know, we took two ideas of scripts that we both had written and we sort of just meshed them together. And it really came out of that in one night. We just came up with it. And, you know, and I, I wrote some stuff down. I sent it to Taika the next day. And I think that it's pretty interesting that, I don't know, like, you know, I, I thought I wouldn't hear from him again for like a year and we'd talk about it then. But like all of a sudden, uh, my agents are like, you have an offer for a pilot. And it was like that fast. It was a few days later, you know, and I, I, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. An executive at FX told me that he took it to FX and he said, you have 45 minutes to say yes or no. And then I'm going out with it. And they were like, yes, <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to have that sort of swagger, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know if I could do that, but, you know, Taika did it. So, I mean, I sort of admire your reticence. It's such a thing that happens to people who do become that big to then people start tugging on their sleeve and asking for things. And you just were like, I'm just going to sit and wait and do my thing. And maybe, you know, some point, maybe we'll work together. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, because I respected that space and friendship, obviously, like you want to be surrounded by people you can trust, you know, and you also want to work with people you can trust. And so I think Taika appreciated that, you know, that I was always really just there for him if he needed to talk as he was kind of exploding and talk through things and similar, he was similar for me, you know? So it's truly been a really good friendship and what better way to sort of celebrate that friendship than have a show together. Coming up, Sterling Harjo tells us why he almost left the industry before creating Reservation Dogs. You're listening to The Business from KCRW. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. This is The Business, and I'm Kim Masters. We're talking to Sterling Harjo, co-creator and showrunner of the FX comedy series Reservation Dogs. The show follows a close-knit group of indigenous teenagers as they deal with challenges, big and small, in a rundown town in Oklahoma. 
Harjo and his writers set out to put their own twist on the tropes that tend to show up in movies and TV shows about natives that have generally been made by non-natives. Early in the series, the reservation dogs get mowed down by paintballs from a rival squad. Then one of them has a vision of a spirit warrior, played by Dallas Goldtooth. The apparition claims to have fought bravely in the Battle of Little Bighorn. Well, I didn't actually fight. I actually didn't even get into the fight itself. But I came over that hill real rugged like, ah, ah. I saw Custer like that, that yellow hair. He was sitting there. Son of the morning star, that guy right there. I really hated him. So I went after him. But then the damn horse hit a gopher hole, rolled over and squashed me. I died there. You know, like there's not a lot of native actors in Hollywood beating down the door to play the next cliche or, or getting shot in front of a teepee sort of role, you know? So a lot of the native actors and talent don't live in Hollywood and you really have to do the work to go outside of Hollywood to find those. You have to go into the communities to find them. And Angelique Midthunder from Midthunder Casting, who casted the show, um, she was very down to do that. And we went to communities together and just met lots of kids all over. It was a really pretty beautiful experience. And, and also just reassuring because there's so many talented actors out there, kids out there that can be in other shows or even this show later. I was impressed with how many great actors there were. Uh, so Taika, having gotten you through the door, <laughs> he then abandons you, goes off to make Thor. <laughs> so you were just like, what? <laughs> and then you had to, I think you called your friend Sierra Teller or Nellis. Uh, yeah, I called her, you know, because I mean, like I always tell people, like I found out what a showrunner was about a year before I became one. And the only other person I knew that was a showrunner was Sierra. She created Rutherford Falls and I called her and I was like, hey, what am I doing? I, I remember asking her this. I was like, should I be like holding meetings or something? Like, is this up to me? Like, what, like, what am I supposed to do? And so, you know, she really talked me through it. And I was also a little worried because I was giving all of the directors are friends of mine. And I was a little worried because I didn't, because I'm a director first and foremost, and I didn't want to step on my friend's toes as directors, you know, and I needed to know what the relationship between the showrunner and director usually is because I hadn't worked on a lot of TV. I directed one episode of the show, The Magicians. So I didn't really know that relationship and how it works. So I was really just talking it through Sierra, like taking me through how this works. And she was really helpful, really super helpful and helping me get through that initial sort of freak out. Did you meet her just from around? I mean, where did you guys connect? It's sort of the same thing. I mean, I think that the indigenous film community gravitates towards each other. We always end up yeah. at the same festivals. Right. It is a community. And that's how I met her. You know, we were just kind of there for each other as we were trying to navigate this business. And I remember telling her I was going to retire at one point. I was going to start a nonprofit. And, you know, she was kind of like, that's ridiculous. You were going to retire? You just were like, okay, this is too hard? When you don't know the business, it's hard to know how it's going to go or how you can walk into the room and, and get a show, you know, or whatever you're trying to do when you're out of it and people aren't coming to you for work or for your ideas, it can feel pretty lonely, I think. And especially, you know, I was outside, I was in Oklahoma. I wasn't in LA. So I didn't, I was even one more step removed from the industry. I didn't know how to make that happen. And honestly, it happened because I started working with, you know, Allison Anders, a friend of mine. She, mm -hmm. she did gas food lodging and maybe Vita Loca. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she and I had been mentors together for the 
Sundance Native Lab and really bonded over music. And her daughter, Tiffany, is actually my music supervisor on Reservation Dogs right now. But um, we became good friends. And she said, you know, if you ever need an introduction to agents and managers, like I have a good team, let me know when you're coming out. And, you know, like it took a couple of years for me to even make a move on that. I just didn't know how it worked. You know, I, I always felt like agents, if they want to be your agent, they'll come for you. And now I realize it's a business. Like I could have easily just went to them and said, Hey, I want representation. They would have said yes or no. We would have had a meeting. I, I realized that now, but at the time I didn't know that. And, you know, and finally I was going out to LA. I, I knew something needed to change. It was around the time I was thinking about quitting and I reached out to Allison and I said, Hey, can you give me a uh, introduction to your team? And she did. It was literally the only team that I met with. I met them. They were all great, you know, but they became my team. And I owe that to Allison. And really it was that, like they started putting me in the room with people. Also, uh, there's a filmmaker named Chris Fisher, who literally was the first person to ever help me in my career. He's the one that offered, it was right after Bird and I met, I sent him a script and Chris Fisher had a film at the Sundance Film Festival, Midnight Screening. And he wrote Bird and he said, I want to support Native filmmakers. Do you have anyone you want to bring out? I want to give my flight and hotel room to a filmmaker. And Bird said, I know the right person. Picked me to come out. And it just gave me the experience of working with, they put me with a couple of writers. I worked with them. Years later, Chris Fisher gave me my first directing job on The Magicians. Wow. You know, there's people like that in my career that I feel like have been there and have helped me along the way, Tyke included. There's just a lot of people like that. And I try to do that myself. I try to pay that forward and, you know, give people work. And like I said, all the, all my friends are directors on this show and a couple of them are first time TV directors and being able to give them the opportunity. Cause that's all they needed was the opportunity. The talent was there, but being able to give them the opportunity was really beautiful, fulfilling experience. That is the power of uh, a lot of things, networking and right. caring. And now let me circle back to the actual making of the show you talked about, you know, as a new showrunner, how do I relate to these directors who are friends of mine and yeah. being, a, I guess, like, you know, how to be a boss. And I would imagine with the writers, I don't know how many of them were friends of yours, but I read that early on, you went back twice to the writer's room and said, we're going to blow it up and redo. <laughs> and right. I'm sure people must have just looked at you like, what? Oh, man, <laughs> but, they were very upset. You know, you wake up in the morning, like every, all the work that we did this week, we're taking it and we're throwing it out and we're starting over. And I would just have these like little panics at night where I would just be thinking about the show and be like, oh, this isn't the show. And so we'd come back and everyone was a little reluctant at first, but inevitably every time we would dig down and we would kind of go back to the source of what this show was and we would find it. And we always felt better. I mean, the worst days were the days that we didn't find it. We inevitably would find it the next day, but like, it was essential to blow those things up and to, to start from scratch. Now, one of the things I read, you were talking about previous depictions and that kind of thing. You said, we're tired of seeing ourselves out there wandering through forests, talking to ghosts, and there's always flute music. And um, I get what you were saying. And yet, I, I will note that in the show, there is a wandering through forests. There are ghosts or that That's kind right. of... So somehow you're just doing it your way, right? I think it's turning the trope on its head and saying, you know, like, isn't it funny that this is what you thought we were like? And we were kind of at one point, but... We're now going to let you in on the joke and we're going to all laugh at it together. I think it's a way to bring people into the show to get the humor. 
I mean, there is also something of a tribute to the past. That's right. There's definitely a tribute to the past in that because, you know, those tropes are, are pulled from reality. We are honoring the past. We're also talking about cinema of the past as well and the depictions of us. And, you know, if you talk to anyone, you say like, tell me the first thing you think of when you think Native American. Well, that, that's the image that they would come up with unless they're watching Reservation Dogs now and they might have new versions of what that would be. And <laughs> I think that that's the beautiful thing about storytelling like this. Sterling Harjo is the creator of the FX series Reservation Dogs. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. And that's The Business. Joshua Farnham produced and edited today's program with help this week from Caitlin Parker and John Meek, who mixed the show. You can stream The Business as well as other great KCRW shows on kcrw.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Masters. We'll see you next week on The Business. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.